Tonight we're actually going to continue uh, our sermon series in Daniel and how we're looking at it through this lens of a post-Christian faith. And tonight we're, we're picking up in chapter 5, but before we get into it, it's worth mentioning that, that many of you have asked me to, to preach and to teach on how to hear God. I think it's, it's, it's a very common thing that, that, that I've heard from you, is that you want to know how you can better understand the, the will and the guidance and the call of God in your lives and how you can actually hear him work. And while we may end up actually doing a sermon series on this in the fall or, or maybe next winter, I want you to pick up that in this story, God is talking. And that over the next uh, few months, as we kind of go through different sermons and stuff, I, I just want to highlight areas where I think that God is speaking. And so I want you to listen tonight to this story. And as we read, be looking for ways that you see God communicating during this story. So if you have your Bibles with you or an app, turn to Daniel 5. And we're going to start in chapter 1. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of scripture tonight. Um, but there, but it's, it's a story, so, so sit back and enjoy. Many years later, King Belshazzar gave a great feast for 1,000 of his nobles, and he drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking the wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver cups that his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to drink from them with his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So they brought these gold cups taken from the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And while they drank from them, they praised their idols made of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly they saw the fingers of a human hand writing on the plaster wall of the king's palace near the lampstand. The king himself saw the hand as it wrote, and his face turned pale with fright. His knees knocked together in fear, and his legs gave way beneath him. The king shouted for the enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers to be brought before him. He said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever can read this writing and tell me what it means will be dressed in purple robes of royal honor and will have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will become the third highest ruler in the kingdom. But when all the king's wise men had come in. None of them could read the writing or tell him what it meant. So the king grew even more alarmed and his face turned pale. His nobles too were shaken. But when the queen mother heard what was happening, she hurried to the banquet hall and she said to Belshazzar, long live the king. Don't be so pale and frightened. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight, understanding, and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, the king, your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers of Babylon. This man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought in before the king. We read in this portion of scripture that Daniel yet again was brought before the king because of something strange that had occurred and that no one else in all of the king's vast employment could figure out. But what's striking about this introduction to this story is that we're reminded again that the people of Israel were living in exile. And it was more than just captivity. It was a cruel existence that, that they were reminded of often as the king would party. And he did that in this story with lifted gold and silver cups from the temple that King Nebuchadnezzar stole 
when he sacked the city of Jerusalem. A constant reminder of who they were. A constant reminder that they did not measure up. But what we need to understand is that this was customary. This wasn't something new. The the Babylonian policy was to commandeer the religious icons or statues of a conquered people group. But in the case of the Jews, and if you have been a good Jew up until this point, you would have known that, that the Jewish people did not make idols or statues to their God. And so there was no icon or statue found in the temple. And so instead, they, they took the cups. And the cups matter because they symbolize two things. The first is the subordinate status of the Jews throughout their exile. It wasn't enough that they were just captive. It was a constant reminder that they were subordinate to the Babylonian peoples. And two, the hunger for valuables that temporarily satisfied the appetite for power. Specifically of the Babylonian kingdom. But what the cups represent really is humanity's desire. A hunger for valuables that only temporarily satisfies the desire. The next thing that we see in this story is the creepy, creepy hand. Now, I don't know, some of you, as I was kind of walking through this sermon with with some people as they kind of popped into my office today and around the church, they talked about how, you know, they kind of glazed over this part of Scripture in Sunday school. But I remember my teacher would talk about the hand. And we're going to come back to it in just a second. But the text clearly emphasizes the abuse of the temple items that were stolen. And the hand represents this idea that God was not happy about it. In fact, the judgment begins immediately after this abuse abuse is described. And it's important to recognize that there is no waiting. There is no delay. The message is delivered during the alcohol-fueled feast. It wasn't wasn't until after. God God was upset at this injustice. And God has a message for this king And he does it in a grand fashion that follows the rest of the narrative of Daniel. The Hebrew Bible describes the fingers of a human hand appearing and writing on the plaster of the wall. Now, just a side note that's interesting here. We sometimes think of plaster, and I know when I was a kid, you would think of kind of drywall. But in a temple of that time, it probably would have been some sort of aggregate rock. And so when we we hear this, so I want you to listen. When we hear that the, word, the words are written on the wall with a finger, it would have been made by scratching away rock. And so I want you to imagine for a second this finger scraping against the wall, perhaps making some sort of screeching sound as a finger does on a chalkboard as the stone was scratched from the wall, revealing words that were legible to everyone in the room. And the reason why I say it like this is because, a quick side note, I want you to to read scripture and to have it come alive. And for me, one of the ways that I do that is I imagine what it would be like to be in a situation in the Bible. I imagine locations that I know of, and I try to describe in great detail in my mind the stories so that they become more real to me. It helps me get more out of my reading and allow uh, it to become more than just background noise. And I encourage you, and this is just a side note from the sermon, to, to, <clears throat> to take your time when you read stories in the Bible. It's so easy to just read a story that we know 
and not really take stock of what's there. But allow yourself to, to hear the message and, and imagine. And, and, I don't, and I don't mean to read between the lines and make stuff up, but, but kind of read through the text, if that makes any sense. Read through the text and, and kind of see and imagine what it might smell like or imagine what it might be like. And it, it, it starts to make Scripture come alive to you as you read it. But now comes the interactive portion of our evening. <laughs> How many here have found it difficult to hear the voice of God before? Put your hand up nice and high. If there's been a point in your life where you've called out for the voice of God, now I want you to just look around quickly and see how many hands are actually raised. This is a very common thing. It's very common to not hear the voice of God. And so I want you to know that you're not alone. Sometimes we feel like we're stuck on an island, right? Sometimes we feel like we're the only ones. We ask God to speak and we pray that he guides and directs us, but sometimes our prayers don't seem to get through the ceiling. It's like he's not hearing us. And sometimes it, it sounds and it feels like maybe he does hear us, but he's just being silent. I've gone through seasons of my life, and I'm sure many of you have either gone through ones like this, or maybe you're currently in one right now, where it seems like no matter what you do, or no matter what you try... You can't hear from God. It's like he's ghosted you, and he's just gone. But then, but I remember times in my life where it's just like he's gone. It's like he's ignoring me. But then all of a sudden he shows up, and he's like, hey, what's up? Where you been? Where have I been? Where have you been? I've been praying. I've been reading. I've been seeking. I've been doing all the ing adjectives I can think of. But no matter what I do, you don't show up. Sometimes it's like God has his read receipts on, but he's just not replying. You know who you are. Stop doing that. It wasn't until I began to change my prayers and begin to look at myself and ask the question, what can I do differently, that I began to see change. Dr. Andrew Gabriel, in his newest book, Simply Spirit-Filled, has a chapter devoted solely to hearing God, and he offers this advice on God's silence. He writes, even when we don't hear from God, we can be assured that the Lord is still at work in our lives because, and he quotes Romans 8, 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you are in a place where you are not currently hearing from God, consider asking God if there is a reason and what you can do about it. Perhaps God is using silence to get your attention. I love that last sentence. Perhaps God is using silence to get your attention. Do you remember that tactic when you were a kid? Remember that? You know, you're talking to a parent or a teacher, or a friend, or an aunt, or an uncle, or some adult in your life, and all of a sudden you'd realize that you were just talking and talking and talking, and this person hasn't said anything in a while. And so you stop talking, and you look at them kind of sheepishly, and they take a second, and then they respond with something wise. Now, if you're here tonight, and you think, no, that's never happened to me, that's probably because you're the friend that listens all the time to your other friends yammer on and on. <laughs> Bless you. We need friends like you. Thank you. But I think that sometimes God just can't even get a word in edgewise. It's like we're just attacking him with prayers. 
We're just hitting him with every piece of our arsenal that we know. Every single prayer, every single way to pray, we're just hitting him with it all. We're hitting him with scripture verses. We're praying that God would, you know, fulfill his promises. And, and we, would, we just go and we go and we go. And he's just standing there like, will you stop talking for one second? Think about it like this. Have you ever been on a phone call before and all of a sudden realize that you've been talking for a while but you're disconnected from the person that you're talking to. Has that ever happened to anyone? This happened to me not that long ago, actually. It was about maybe two or three weeks ago. I was talking to a friend on the phone, and I was going on and on and on and on, and all of a sudden, my phone rang, and I looked, and it was him. So I answered it, and I was like, hello? And what was the question that I asked? I was like, when, when did you stop hearing me? What part of my story did you miss? And I think that sometimes we disconnect from God without even realizing it. And so I just want to encourage you tonight that when we're experiencing silence from God, it's worth slowing down and listening, and then maybe even gently asking how we can change our perspective to hear Him. And then the next question usually comes, how, how do we know what God sounds like? And I'm actually not going to answer that question tonight. But... I wanted to come at it from a slightly different angle. In the same book that we just read from, Andrew Gabriel writes this. He says that I eventually realized that sometimes the reason God speaks loudly to people is because they haven't been listening. And when I read that, it hit me real hard. I remember times in my life when God has spoken the most clearly in my life has been when I have been not listening. <laughs> now, if you don't, if you didn't kind of get the last example I just gave, you're going to get this one for sure. Do you remember being a kid and all of a sudden your parent was yelling at you? Just out of the blue, you're like, whoa. It's just all of a sudden your parent's just yelling at you and you can't figure out why. Well, I'm a parent now and I figured out why. You want me to let you in on a little secret? It's, <laughs> I appreciate your, your honesty. You know what the, the reason is? Is because your parent had actually been talking to you for a long time before they started yelling at you. You just didn't realize. It goes something like this. This is a true story. Ellie, that's my daughter. Hey, sweetie, can you please go put on your shoes? It's almost time to leave and go see some friends. It's going to be so much fun. I love you. She keeps doing her thing. Ellie, it's time to put your shoes on. Let's go, sweetie. Ellie, let's go. Let's get moving. Elliot, full name. I'm serious. Go put your shoes on. See, she's already crying. <laughs> That's our youngest. She knows the trauma. And then it ends like this. Elliot Rose Gordon, go put your butt on the steps and put your shoes on right now. <laughs> then my sweet, sweet Elliot Rose Gordon looks at me with her big eyes and she goes, Daddy, why are you angry at me? <laughs> I'm telling you folks, man, oh, being a parent just cuts through the noise. But I, I just sometimes imagine that's exactly what God's like. That's exactly what he's like. 
he looks at us and he's like so sweet and he's like, come on, man, like I got a plan for you. Come on, buddy. Look at this. Look at this awesome thing I got planned for you. No, no, seriously. Look, look, look at it. No, Luke, Luke, look at it. Come here. And then he grabs me and then I'm like, whoa, why are you so angry, man? Calm down. Well, I just think that that God cuts through the noise of our life in different ways. And the very first and the most important way that I think that he does is through Scripture. I think that he speaks through Scripture powerfully to us. And I think that unfortunately, we don't read it. It's very much like not reading the manual and expecting everything to work out really well. We don't read the Bible, so we don't understand and we don't hear God's teaching. And we stand in his presence and we go, why aren't you talking to me? And he's like, man, I wrote you a book. Read it. It's full, of, it's full of stuff for you. Last week, Pastor Josh unpacked the story of Nebuchadnezzar and how he lost his mind in the wilderness. And, and I heard something about don't be weird. Does that resonate with any of you? But the point is, is after that story, we pick up in Daniel about a man named Belshazzar, the current king. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was Belshazzar's predecessor, and in fact, his father. Belshazzar knew who Nebuchadnezzar was. He knew very well what, what Nebuchadnezzar had done, and I'm sure that they sat around the, the table together and they talked. But when we pick up in verse 22 of Daniel 5, we see that Belshazzar has clearly not listened to God. And so we pick up in verse 22. You, this is Daniel talking to Belshazzar. You are his successor, O Belshazzar, and you knew all this, yet you have not humbled yourself, for you have proudly defied the Lord of heaven and have had these cups from this temple brought before you. You and your nobles and your wives and, the con- and your concubines have been drinking wine from them while praising the gods of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, and stone, gods that neither see, or see nor hear nor know anything at all. But you have not honored the God who gives you the breath of life and controls your destiny. So God has sent this hand to write this message. This is the message that has ri- was written. Meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson. This is what these words mean. Meanie means numbered. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel means weighed. You have been weighed on the balances and have not measured up. Parson means divided. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was dressed in purple robes. A gold chain was hung around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And Belshazzar still wasn't listening to Daniel and he still wasn't listening to God. Because we read next that that very night, Belshazzar, the Babylonian king, was killed. And Darius the Mede, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. God wanted Belshazzar's attention, and unfortunately, it took him far too long to catch on to what was happening. Now, we need to understand that that's the fabric, that's part of the fabric of the Old Testament story. Both the ruling kings of the non-Jewish people and the Jewish people alike did not ever seem to hear the voice of God until it was too late. And so I think it's important that when we read this, we take note We take note that it's important to hear God before we get too far from him. Friends, we get so caught up in the ways of the world about making sure, and I hate that I wrote this, but hang with me, making sure that our Jordans drip and our music is lit. 
what's up with that, eh? Come on. Yeah, I'm disappointed in myself. You can't be more disappointed than me. But there's so much more to this life. There's so much more to this life than just the things of this world, than just trying to fit in and trying to be cool, trying to, to keep up with the world around us. And when we begin to listen to the voice of God and when we begin to pull out these scripture verses, that's why this is important, is because it helps us to see that there is more. And tonight as I was, or today as I was preparing for this sermon, there was something that came out in it that I want to touch on briefly, and I'll be honest with you, it's an uncomfortable topic. And so I want to be respectful, but I also want to challenge you tonight. And something that comes very strongly out of this portion of scripture is the word reconciliation. It's a word that's taken on a level of meaning in Canada that divides our country into at least two very distinct categories. And trust me, I do my best to avoid preaching about political matters because I'm unable to speak with authority on the topic. Frankly, because of my lack of understanding, my lack of study. However, I believe that the Holy Spirit has prompted me to touch on this topic tonight. And so I just, uh, I would ask that you would listen to this and you would allow it to speak to you because it's, it's uncomfortable for me to talk about, but I want to talk about it. Daniel, the book of Daniel in general, but especially chapter five has a significant theme of abuse of conquered people's cultures and value. We see in Daniel five, one of the most insidious elements of imperial power and oppression the destruction of faith and identity, and the attack on a culture as well as a people. One book I read recently said it this way, the intoxication of power releases the ruler from maintaining any further pretenses. It makes us boast that we are the conquerors. We are the superior culture. Let us parade their treasure and mock the defeated. And while many of us in Canada would never utter such despicable words, there is an attitude that creeps into the minds of the masses that says, we won, they lost, suck it up. But I want you to hear this tonight, humiliating the conquered only props up the myth of superiority. For us gathered here tonight, Daniel 5 is a call to understand the humiliation of defeated cultures and peoples. And I think that perhaps it encourages us to work towards reconciliation and restitution so that finally we can live in a society that appreciates and celebrates the diverse traditions that enrich our lives. Perhaps it needs to be said this way, that for many Christians who have been born to the privileges afforded by being the dominant religious culture for so long, such a prophetic task begins by excusing ourselves from the same attitudes of Belshazzar in this story before it's too late. Up until now, we've been looking at Daniel through the lens of us, Christians who are living in a post-Christian world. We look at it through this lens of losing our identity, but tonight I wanted to take a minute and highlight the fact that we actually have people in our very own city who have lost their identity and had culture stripped from them. 
And perhaps the people of God could come together and remember our history of exile and extend a hand of grace and a message of love to our indigenous brothers and sisters. And I hope you can appreciate and understand my heart in this message. It isn't to stir up political divisions. It's, it's, not to, it's not to make you feel polarized or make you feel like I stand on one side of the political spectrum or not because I don't. I truly stand back as much as I can and I try to look at things through the lens of Scripture and through the lens of who Jesus Christ is. Instead, I want you to understand that my hope and prayer is that this helps you like it's helped me and continues to challenge me to begin to see the ways that we can create unity and actually live out God's desire for his people, all his people. So I just wanted to put that in here tonight as something that God really put on my heart. And I didn't really know how to, how to get to it, but I just know that this, this stirs deeply within me that we read about these exiled cultures. And our heart breaks for the Jewish people in scripture, but we have people here today. But we have more to cover. <laughs> There's a lot going on in this portion of scripture, and it's, it's a long one, and I honestly wish we could have maybe broken it up, and that was poor sermon planning on my part, but we're going to keep pressing on, and, and I'd be super happy later to nerd out with you with details, because there's a lot of stuff that goes on here. There's a lot of Jewish propagation that happens in this. There's a, a lot of textual variances between the Septu- Septuagint, the Greek, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and early manuscripts, and so if you're a, a nerd about stuff like that, come talk to me afterwards. I'd love to, but there's a connection between this story and something found in the New Testament that I think is going to bring everything together tonight. Can we read that? Thank you. It's found in John chapter 8. Let's go to John chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And when he stooped down again and wrote, then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I was driving to a meeting yesterday with Loren, and uh, I was driving in my grandpa truck. Um, Nicole likes to call it my grandpa truck because it's light blue. Um, But as I was driving, I was listening to CBC Radio 1, which is also, you know, another indication that it might be an old man's truck. But as I was driving, I was listening to CBC, and I had to I had to check the radio station a couple of times to make sure I was actually listening to CBC because yesterday they were talking about the Bible, specifically this story in John 8. And they were pulling out all of the interpretations of it. They were discussing this portion of Scripture and how it's all about not judging other people and about the need to see others in a positive light and a host of other socially constructed modern ways of interpreting this passage. But then something just clicked in my mind. Something clicked 
and I believe it was the Holy Spirit, he asked me, Luke, what did, what did Jesus write in the sand that day? Full disclosure, I have no idea. Full disclosure, if anybody ever tells you they do, they're nuts. There's just, there's no way to know what Jesus wrote. Nobody wrote it down. I don't know why. It seems like an important detail, but they didn't. So it's all conjecture. But I wonder, and like I said before, I like to make scripture come alive. So little things like this are a veritable smorgasbord of imaginative ways for me to fill in the blanks. And so I started thinking about it and I started praying about it and all of a sudden it clicked. I went, what if? Because you see, some people believe, some scholars believe that Jesus was writing the sins of the people in the sand. But that seems kind of unlikely because there was a lot of people and sand is hard to write in unless you're in Puerto Vallarta and you write like, you know, Luke, Hart, Morgan in the sand and make everyone jealous about your trip, which has never happened. The far th I've been to California once, but it was for a conference. Other than that, I've been to Utah, so. <laughs> Sorry if you know people from Utah. Just stop talking to them. They're not. Anyway, other scholars have suggested that maybe he was just doodling. Legit, I've read that today in a commentary. Perhaps he was just doodling in the sand. Whatever. Um, some scholars have thought that maybe he was making some sort of reference to the cross. But I wonder. I wonder if he wrote the words meanie, meanie, tekel, and parson in the sand. You see, he was talking to Pharisees. He was talking to experts of the law that had come to condemn and ultimately stone this woman to death. So maybe Jesus wrote this knowing that these men would immediately know what he was saying. He said the words, let the, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. But what he was also saying in this is he was saying that you have been weighed on the balances of your actions and you don't measure up. He was saying your days are numbered and eventually your, in, your earthly kingdom will reign no more. Let me remind you, purely conjecture, no scientific validity to this, but I find it intriguing. Jesus was figuratively drawing a line in the sand saying that you can either continue to stand on your side in futility or you can come to me and see that I'm about to usher in a new kingdom that will put yours to shame just like the reign of Belshazzar who on the same night that the finger wrote the words meanie, meanie, tekel and parson was killed and his reign was ended. It's compelling. It's compelling because scripture tells us this in Romans 3.23 for everyone has sinned we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Now you know me, and you know that I dislike tattooable verses. This is one of them. It's a little dark, but like you could if you felt like it. So many people I know love quoting this scripture, and I'm guilty of it too. For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard or some version thereof. But let me say this. If you simply quote this scripture, but you don't quote the next one, you've missed the whole point. Does anyone here know what verse 24 says? It says this, Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. If you're going to say verse 23, you better say verse 24 because it's the antidote. It's the answer. It's the cure. 
It's the result of who Jesus is for us today. Because you see, friends, the story of the woman caught in adultery isn't about the scribes and the Pharisees' sin of self-righteousness. It's not about the woman's sexual sin. It's actually about the power of Jesus and his ability to bring about new life. It's a radical story of a God who's descended into our realm to change the game, to flip the script and to rewrite the ending. Because we were all measured and we have all been found lacking. We are all limited in our days on earth in these human bodies, but we are no longer called to the same reality that the Israelites in the time of Daniel were. We are called to something greater. And as we've been looking at the story of Daniel through the lens of a post-Christian world and a post-Christian lens, it's easy to think that the odds are stacked against us. It's easy to think that, that we're losing ground. We hear stats all the time. Churches are closing doors and the rates of Christianity are dropping compared to the rise of population in cities. And we feel like we're losing ground, but I want you to know tonight that that's just the death rattles of the enemy trying to convince us that we're powerless, trying to make you think that your faith doesn't matter. But I want to encourage you tonight to be strong and to be courageous, to cling to the new reality of Jesus' kingdom and to take heart because he says in John 16, that he has overcome the world. Because of Jesus, we are free. You are free. So let's choose life. Let's choose to see the world through the lens of Jesus Christ and not through the lens of a post-Christian world. To see the lens, to see through the lens rather, of how God sees his humanity in his creation. Let's love our neighbors. Let's be the difference that this world needs. Let's listen for God before he needs to yell at us or right on the wall with a creepy hand. And let's believe together that a better world is possible, not because of you and me, but because of who Christ is and who he says we are. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that you move powerfully today just like you did 4,000 years ago. God, we pray that, that you would encourage us, that you would encourage us to love those around us, that you would help us to see people through the lens of our experiences, both personally and collectively as a Christian faith as we look back through the lens of Scripture and we look back at the stories of those that have come before us. And God, in all things, would our eyes be turned to you and would you alone be the one who tells us and defines us because you alone are worthy. We love you, God. Amen.